podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger Podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. everybody welcome along to this edition of the cricket badger podcast i'm james the cricket badger as always taking you through the podcast today thank you to tvsportsblog.com for their support of the cricket badger podcast it's much appreciated have a look on their website some great sporting content on there and give them a follow please at tv sports blog on twitter plenty of really good cricket badger podcasts coming up just around the corner and today i'm joined by colin babb the author who has a new book out 1973 and me the england the west indies test series Series and a memorable childhood year. In 1973, Colin was just a, a young nipper living in London, bright eyed, looking at the world, and he was woken up to cricket by the fact that the West Indies came over to this country. Colin hails from the Caribbean, his roots in Guyana, Guadeloupe, and Barbados. Book covers not just the cricket, and it was a very important series that for the West Indies, but it also covers Colin's recollections and his social commentary on what was going on around London, around the UK, how important that West Indies tour was to the Caribbean community in this country. As you know, a lot of people from the Caribbean came across for work in the 50s, 60s, settled in England, obviously still had massive connections with the Caribbean. And when the West Indies cricket team came over in 1973, and obviously on other tours, there was a lot of pride that was placed in that team. And in 1973, they came up trumps, and obviously the rest is history. The next couple of decades from then on, pretty much the West Indies ruled the roost in terms of world cricket. For his book, 1973 and Collins also talked to a, a number of the key members of the West Indies side and it also looks at the history, identity, music and politics, shared family experiences of television in the 70s, memorable events and of course the cricket in 1973. Really good guest on this edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. I'm sure you'll enjoy it so stay tuned. Early on just to give you a little bit of an explanation for one of the early passages on this because I, I don't introduce Colin until a little bit further into this uh, edition of the podcast. We do it across WhatsApp and on my WhatsApp there's a picture of myself and Gordon Greenwich from a trip I had to the Caribbean once and uh, Colin does mention he says who's who's that in the picture with you and that's what he's referring to 1973 and me the England the West Indies test series a memorable childhood year by Colin Babb who is my guest on this edition of the Cricket Badger podcast it's that Badger style I've never heard the surname Bab before, other than Phil Bab that used to play for Liverpool. I don't guess you're not related to him, are you? Well, we're not related, but interestingly, Bab is a very popular name in Guyana and Barbados. And I understand uh, through a woman I worked with years ago who knew his mother, who was Irish, that's why he played for Ireland, that his father was from Guyana. And that would make a lot of sense because Bab yeah. is a very Guyanese or Barbadian name, which is where my family come from. Uh, I've never met him, but I, I've met someone who knows his brother. That's as close as it goes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, when I when I I've been to Ireland a few times for work and for pleasure. And Phil was, I think, just finishing his career when um, I was in Ireland the last time, and uh, I thought I'd go into a, a pub and sort of impress the locals and say, "Oh, well, you know, you might have heard of uh, Phil Bab." Yeah. Um, and then he said, oh, "Oh, yeah, yeah, Phil Bab, he's shite." <laughs> <laughs> There's no Irish in you then. Well, interestingly, you should say this, actually. My father's family has a hint of, well, they, they 
he claims his great his grandfather was Irish, but digging into it, I think he probably might have been English. Right. Um, yeah. So I mean, the thing is, is that um, a lot of Caribbean families have white ancestry because a lot of the men, principally, who went out to the Caribbean went without women. Yes. So, and obviously the whole thing with ownership of slaves and having their way with, with slave women. And also some of these relationships were consensual um, between black women and, and slave masters. And also after slavery had ended, there were lots of different types of relationships, some some uh, illicit, some, uh, you know, between people who wanted to spend mm. time with each other legitimately. So, yeah, the Caribbean is a very diverse place, and that's why 1973 is such an important book. I was out, I went out to Bar- I've been out to Barbados a few times actually, um, cricket related trips and, and what have you. And uh, the last time we went out, we got uh, treated very nicely by the Barbados Tourism Authority, who took us all over the place. And one of the trips that I went on to on was to one of the plantations and looking at the the history of slavery, effectively out in in Barbados. It was very interesting. Mm. Sugar, sugar, sugar. Once the yeah, yeah. Europeans discovered they could make money um, producing sugar to please the sweet tooth of Europeans who discovered tea and coffee, it was just that's what it, that's what these islands are, were for, really. Um, a lot of sugar isn't really the the engine that ticks the economy in these countries anymore. I mean, other things like tourism and you know bauxite and all God God knows whatever else. So yeah, it's not so much the same. Who's the picture? I can see a picture of you with somebody. I can't, oh, that can't was, work out who it is. Yeah, that was taken out in Barbados. That was with Gordon Greenwich. Oh, really? Guy, he looks really different. Looks really different in that picture. Um, interestingly, my my cousin in Barbados is an architect, and she was supposedly working on a school. Which there's a school in Barbados which is named after him. Yeah, okay. primary school, I believe. I didn't even know this, and apparently she was supposed to be working on the reconstruction of it. But I don't know what happened to that project. Okay, well, he didn't mention that to me, but <laughs> we had we had a very nice time actually. I was out there covering the MCC games and uh, and various things with the, the Champion County Essex at the time, and I'd, I'd already interviewed Gordon a little bit earlier in the trip. But then we got all invited to yeah. his house because he does a when there's tours and and things over there. He's got a big backyard. Um, some of it's under and the corrugated iron kind of like sheltered in the shade a bit open but he does right. he, he okay. kind of s- sets up some catering everybody sits around and then and um, they had a local, right. local yeah. musician came in and played for us and yeah it's very good that's fantastic i've only met him once that was at a an event in bristol to raise funds for the care of winston davis okay yes who yeah. played for the west indies yeah he lives in Worcestershire now, I think, or out that way somewhere. And there was, there's, there was an event every year to raise funds for his care. And there was a charity match and Gordon was playing. So I managed to have a meal with him, have a chat with him. And uh, yeah, he didn't open up to me that much. He seemed quite reserved and quiet. But um, yeah, with a chat, a little chat, I was trying to interview him for this for a book I was writing and he wasn't giving much away. So I kind of gave up, yeah. <laughs> basically. He was quite quiet when I met him, really. He was just a, a very normal, kind of humble kind of guy, really. It was quite, it was quite pleasant. It was quite nice for that, that to be the case sometimes, rather than being quite open and brash and, uh, and ego-driven. He just seemed to be very, very normal. Yeah, his story features in 1973 and me because... Um, are, are you recording all this, by the way? I, I've recorded everything so far, but I haven't actually introduced you yet. So. Oh. <laughs> it's a pleasure on the Cricket Badger podcast this edition to welcome Colin Babb, the author, 1973 and me is his book we're going to get all the way through that and what that means to him it's basically colin correct me if i'm wrong with this it's your little bit of your life story it's the west indies over in england in 1973 and that tour which i don't think has been chronicled too many times um in book form 
And it's also a little bit of the social kind of racial heritage kind of stuff around the edges of that, about how the West Indies came over in 1973. And obviously, from there on, they won 2-0 in 1973. They came back in 1976 and won again and went on a, a procession of victories from there on. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 73 is a tour which I think has been ignored by a lot of people consumed by writing or speculating or supporting West Indies cricket, particularly those uh, people who look at the history of the connection between West Indies cricket and the Caribbean community in Britain from 1950 onwards in particular. And 73 was important to me because by the time we got to the third test in 1973, uh, we had a colour television, which meant that I could see the ball was red and the grass was green, uh, which was quite sensational. Obviously, if you're a, a younger person tuning into this, you might find that about a bit strange, but it was quite, quite, quite a big thing. So that tour was very important for me for that reason. And also, it was the first cricket tour that I remember really feeling a sense of commitment to West Indies cricket. Although I would say leading up to the tour, I was getting more into cricket because football was my first love. It was that tour. It was a tour that really ignited my passion in the game. Although there was a build up to that. If you wanted to, you could watch John Player Lee cricket every Sunday on BBC Two. And that was a 40 over, it was in those days, a 40 over Sunday tournament sponsored by the John Player Cigarette Company, which of course <laughs> seems very old-fashioned now that cigarette companies can support and promote cricket tournaments. But yeah, so that it was that uh, watching the Sunday League and and that tour, which ignited my passion. My background is is in fact uh, my mother's from Guyana and my father's from Barbados. So I'm part Guyanese, part Barbadian. But uh, I've always felt more connected with Guyana because okay. most of my family who are uh, in Britain. Uh, in the 60s and 70s were from Guyana. So I always felt much more Guyanese. And I was brought up also by two very strong uh, characters who were Guyanese, my mother and my great-grandmother. But also that tour was important from a West Indian perspective because it was the early 70s. Many West Indian people were still finding their feet in Britain. There was the constant frustration and, and, and obstacle of racism and prejudice in housing, employment, education, and many other facets of life. Although some West Indian families had put a firm foothold in Britain, there, was, there were a lot of challenges which they still face today, the community in some ways, but in a different way. And when the West Indian team came over, uh, they were had almost mythical status in some eyes. And also, whether you were a cricket fan or not, if you were West Indian, you knew the tour was happening because people would be watching it on television or trying to get into a ground to watch the team play. So, yeah, the, the tours are very, very important, especially in the 60s and 70s. It's a period, I think, which has been slightly ignored when we're looking at that connection between West Indian cricket and the Caribbean community in Britain because there's often a heavy focus on, for example, the 76 Gravel Tour or the 84 Blackwash Tour. And I think we need to really examine uh, 66 before 69 and 73 and obviously 1950 as tours which helped to cement that relationship and give the community here, the West Indian community, a, a chance to make that connection back home through cricket. Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look. 
and give them a follow on Twitter at TV Sports Blog. How old were you in 1973? I, 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 from what you're saying there, you were quite a young man and this was really your awakening and obviously the colour TV is a, a big part of that, but this is your first kind of conscious kind of watching of cricket. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was nine going on ten, so I think uh, your listeners can work out how old I am now. Um, <laughs> I'll move on very quickly, just in case they didn't get that, and didn't want to rewind. So basically, yeah, I was nine going on ten. I was living in South London. I was... Um, living with my Guyanese mother, my Guyanese great-grandmother, and my Barbadian father, who wasn't always around because he was in the army, so he's often posted overseas. And we lived in a street with people from various backgrounds. It was, I would say, a very regular street with working-class and lower-middle-class families, a mixture of council house dwellers, um, housing association dwellers, and owner-occupiers. And we didn't always see eye to eye with various people we shared the street with but there again there were other people in the street who we liked um so it was a fairly typical uh semi-urban experience living living in britain at that time obviously there was a specter of racism uh, all around um we had a i had one or two instances which i talk about in the book from around that time but i guess that's why cricket was so important to west indian people because it gave us an outlet it gave us something to focus on. It gave us a sense of pride. And also, you must remember that people came to this country from different parts of the Caribbean. They came from St. Lucia, Antigua, Jamaica, Barbados, Guyana, Trinidad, Dominica. So when they came to England or came to the UK, it was a chance to meet people from different parts of the Caribbean who you probably had not met before. And Cricket added an extra unifying glue, which glued us all together for the five days of a test match. So it didn't matter whether you were Jamaican or Trinidadian, you had one focus. Interesting you say that, Con, because the, all, all the stuff I see from the people actually living in the Caribbean, there's a big rivalry, isn't there, between the islands. But you're saying that in London at that time, there might have been that rivalry out of cricket. But when cricket came along, that was the glue that united you all. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't just say London. I would say the whole country because... One of the things I stress in this book and in other discussions I've had or interviews or things I've written is that the Caribbean community in Britain is not just a London community. I think we focus too much on that. And I think sometimes we focus on too much on the fact that it's mainly Jamaican and mainly in London. You know, our community is spread throughout the whole country. Um, You could be in Bradford and meet a lot of people from Dominica. In Leeds, you'll meet a lot of people from St. Kitts and Nevis. In Reading... Uh, Reading has a history of a strong Barbadian community, for example. Luton and uh, High Wycombe has a tradition of uh, having people live there, uh, reside there from St. Vincent. So it wasn't just a London experience. It was an experience which was uh, nationwide. And I think although we shared, other West Indian people in Britain shared similar uh, migration issues, difficulties with racism and prejudice, subtly or more violent um there were still uh, inter-island rivalries as well as uh, ethnic rivalries amongst the community in britain which perhaps still exists so if you are um say for example an indo-caribbean from trinidad you know you may have some issues with say uh, african guyanese for example or you know or an antigua might not see eye to eye with someone from st vincent you know just like any part of the world at any region you know, there were differences, similarities and differences. But 
from my observations growing up in the 70s and in the 80s, um, even though uh, West Indians in Britain might have had disputes about the makeup of the team in terms of there's too many Barbadians in the team or there are too many Jamaicans in the team or uh, we should have a Guyanese captain or a Trinidadian captain and why haven't we got enough Antiguan players? Generally, I think we came together and supported the team as a whole. So it didn't matter who was scoring the runs or taking the wickets. I find it quite interesting. One of my best mates from school is uh, of Indian heritage. He was born in Harrogate. But uh, I, I can remember as a kid saying to him when England were playing India, who are you supporting? Why are you supporting India? Because you were born in this country. And I remember him clear as a day, he turned to me and said, yeah, but I still have Indian heritage. I'm still very proud of kind of where I've come from. Is that something that you can relate to there? That you know, Although you're born in England, and th- those um, Caribbean roots run very deep, don't they? Yeah, I think, um, I suppose, I'm not saying I was fortunate, but, you know, from a reasonably young age, I, I went to the Caribbean. So I, I went there for myself or with my family, I should say. So I was able to have feet in both camps. I was able to live in Britain, but sometimes go to the Caribbean to touch the soil, as they say, meet my family and do other things. And get some sunshine. So I was completely aware... <laughs> Yeah, you could say, yeah. Uh, So I was completely aware of that connection. And I grew up eating uh, Guyanese food, whether it was curry and roti or garlic pork at Christmas. You know, for me, I lived in a very West Indian uh, household. When I was outside of that household, I know Lenny Henry talks about this as well. I became slightly different. I had different friends from different backgrounds who I mixed with liked or didn't yeah, like you, you've um, so, listened you've listened to the louis thoreau podcast with lenny henry as well haven't you i, I listened to that and i found it fascinating I, well i read his uh, autobiography uh, and he talked about that and i think having a twofold existence is something which some people from different backgrounds have i know one or two people i work with or i've been friends with who've had irish parents who said similar things so i don't think it's necessarily a west indian thing but for me um there was no, there was no decision or thinking about it. I supported the West Indies mainly because I was supporting teams that my family and friends of my family often talked about. All these players, but I never actually saw myself. I mean, Hall and Griffiths, I didn't see Ramadin and Valentine, I didn't see the three Ws, I didn't see. But there were these are figures that were spoken of in my house or my flat in uh, in their reverential terms. You know, they're almost like godlike figures. So. Growing up, I was always aware of these players. And obviously, when I came of age to watch cricket in the early 70s, I began to watch Lloyd, Kalicharan, Keith Voice, Bernard Julian, Barry Sobers coming to the end of his career, Rohan Kenai. And these are my uh, my heroes. But also, talking about the twofold existence, I tended to support uh, the UK entry in the Eurovision Song Contest, for example. <laughs> so there you are. And also, <laughs> I always supported British athletes, um, British boxers. And also, um, although I wasn't that keen on the England team growing up, I never felt as if supporting England was something that we were uh, felt comfortable in doing if we were black in the 70s. But as I got older, I got really into supporting England, and I support England at football 100%. Um, I think. The World Cup in 98, when Glenn Hoddle was the manager, was when I really got behind England. And I think from then onwards, I became an England football fan and a West Indian cricket fan. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, a lot of people have twofold identities. Um, And I think uh, what you'll see is certainly within the heart and souls of people born here in the last 10, 15 years, 
who may have a West Indian parents or West Indian grandparents, um, who's to say that they're not going to support England at cricket if England plays the West Indies? That's up to them. Um, I personally don't really care whether you support England or the team of your ancestral or parental heritage. Or that. That's just up to you. I mean, I don't have any problem whatsoever with that. And I know um, uh, one or two people who I don't know that well, but who were acquaintances of mine who wanted to support England at cricket against the West Indies. And they were West Indians born and brought up here. And uh, they weren't, uh, let's say that wasn't such a popular choice. So the pressure comes from different angles, you know, to support one team or the other. That pressure can come from uh, your own community or it can come from the Tebbit test. But there again, I think it's just up to you to, to make your own choice, what, what you feel comfortable in doing. And for me, I, I, it was just an automatic choice to support the West Indies cricket team in the 70s. And the 73 test confirmed everything for me. I was able to watch them on TV and, and remember that very, very well, that series. Fed up of collecting your team's matchday subs? Worried about carrying cash post-COVID-19? Try slateapp.co.uk. Less contact than contactless. Slate, the smartest way to collect weekly match fees and more. Download the app, slateapp.co.uk. Not just for cricket, any clubs that collect subs. It just makes sense. Stick it on the slate. Slateapp.co.uk. My, my friend Santanu, who I, I referred to in that previous question, he... He supports India against England. He supports India, obviously, when India are playing anybody else. He supports England when they're playing everybody else but India. Um, and his wife's Australian. So that adds an extra complication into the dynamic of that household. But uh... <laughs> I'm just laughing because we have one or two dynamics in, in our in our household because I'm Guyanese, Bajan background, brought up in England. Uh, my wife is Albanian. So my son, if he becomes a very good footballer, can play for <laughs> Guyana, Barbados, Ing- England or Albania. He says that his top football team is England and his second football team is Albania. He says his top cricket team is England. His second is, is the West Indies. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, <laughs> so that's the way it goes. I mean, you know, you just make your own choices. But I mean, for me, the West Indies were everything. Um, they were a symbol of pride. They were a way of getting one over the English. So if you felt you were being downtrodden upon in this country, Beating the English at cricket was just a way of getting back at them. It was kind of a, a kind of a symbol of revenge. But for me, it wasn't just about England. I wanted the West Indies to be everybody, whether it was India, Pakistan, Australia, New Zealand, anybody. Right. I just wanted the West Indies to con- to conquer all. Really, what you, you talk know. about there, though, in the in the nineteen seventies, about the feeling of being downtrodden. Racism was. I mean, we're talking about racism in twenty twenty, but in nineteen seventies, it was overt. It was in the windows. No blacks, no dogs, no whatever. Wasn't no Irish. Um, you, you talk, I think, in in the book about some of the TV programs in in those days, which love thy neighbour and things like that. Which you know, any any youngster watching that now would kind of fall off the sofa if they saw some of the things that were portrayed in those programs. Um, so it was a, a very different time, wasn't it? Yes, it was a different time. But to be honest with you, I don't look back at that time with, with horror and dread because it wasn't all bad. A lot of my life around that time was fun and enjoyable. It wasn't grim. It wasn't about uh, being persecuted all the time. So that's why that's what I try and put in the book. Um, there was shade and humour, seriousness, politics. It was all there, all going on. And I do refer to programs that we watched, like Love Thy Neighbor, um, The Comedians, um, Eurovision Song Contest, Miss World. I mean, many people would bulk up the idea Mm. of beauty contests being on on terrestrial television, but we watched them. And 
to be honest with you, we weren't snaring at them. We enjoyed them. They're not popular now, but there again, you have a program on Channel 4 called Naked Attraction, where people seem to pick their partners uh, based on, on, on complete nakedness. And that seems to be quite vogue, you know. So, you know, what's vogue and what isn't, God only knows. But seriously, um, it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all good. And that's what I try and put in the book. But one thing for certain is that what the West Indies team did is that when they arrived, it was so important to our community. They were, the, they were almost our ambassadors and they represented us. And, you know, if they beat England at cricket, especially in England, it just made us feel really, really, really good. Um, and not just if they won, but if they played in a particular, in a, in a particular style. You know, not just a flamboyant style, but in the typical swagger and West Indian way with discipline as well. And uh, that combination showed that, you know, as West Indians united without uh, worrying about which island we came from or what our ethnic makeup was, you know, we could come together and work together and achieve success, which is the sort of thing I got when I spoke to Derek Murray um, about his feelings about the team who came here in the 60s and the 70s. And of course, you know, having Guyanese heritage meant that when Rahan Kanai led the team here in 1973, for me, that was, uh, that was very important. It was very important for a number of reasons. Um, it gave uh, non-Caribbean people in this country and, and outside the UK a chance to get a, a, a slice of the diverse nature of Caribbean society. The fact that uh, we have people in the Caribbean of African heritage Indian heritage, mixed Indian and African heritage, European heritage, Amerindian heritage, Portuguese heritage, and um, some of uh, the 1973 team were made up of, of those different uh, ethnic and heritage backgrounds. So yeah, that that was why looking back, that team was so important. Uh, you had Inchan Ali and people like Alvin Kalicharan and Rahan Kanai, who were Indian Caribbean heritage, and then you had other players who were of African Caribbean heritage. And, you know, you had um, the, the opening batsman, Steve Kamach, who was of Portuguese Guyanese heritage, who unfortunately was injured in a, a pre-test match um, at Hampshire. He got injured. In, in, interestingly, he got injured facing uh, the bowling and of Andy Roberts, um, who was playing one of his first games for Hampshire as a young, fast bowler. Um, and he went on to do one of the two things, didn't he? Yeah, it was all going on. It was all going on in terms of that representation and that link to the Caribbean and revealing a sense of the diverse nature of, of Caribbean society, whether or not people from those different social, economic and ethnic backgrounds always got on. Well, obviously they didn't. But, you know, it was good that that team was able to reveal that to a wider public, as did as did the 19... 50 team, um, which came here and uh, as some of your listeners know, the West Indies won their first test series in England during the 1950 tour and their first test victory was at Lord's. So that, that very year, um, you know, cricket, lovely cricket. And that tour was important because many British observers of cricket, they were able to see an Indo-Caribbean cricketer, Sonny Ramadan. Um, who took many wickets on that tour, as as most people know, uh, from Trinidad. So for them, it was the first time they could see somebody of Indian heritage representing the West Indies, another glimpse into the diverse nature of the Caribbean. Colin, we've never met, but I know you're a good guy. And do you know why I know you're a good guy? Because you're a Leeds United fan, and so am I. And I know in the book, yeah. you look at uh, Albert Johansson's uh, role in the Leeds side, 
I think you also look at some of the other black players playing in the, the 1970s in England. How would you bring that into the discussion in terms of the significance of them and their role in Caribbean society in England? Well, um, I didn't know you were a Leeds fan, so... Uh... Hey, that means uh, I'm definitely going to keep talking. <laughs> You've got me. You've got me for as long as you got me for as long as you want me. Uh, yeah, I got into Leeds basically um, by watching TV. The first football match I remember watching was the 1970 FA Cup final against Chelsea. The replay, not the first match, but the replay. And um, when I left school and got a little older, I, I spent a bit of time across the country and, and out of the country. And I spent a bit of time in Leeds for one reason or the other. That was the reason I supported Leeds initially because of that match and. It was just watching that team wearing white shirts. I remember the white shirts gripped me through my black and white TV. And I, me- I remember getting very upset when they lost the replay. And from then on, I became a Leeds fan. And I watched my first Leeds match about five years after that. But um, yeah, uh, for me, uh, the reason why football um, took up a bit of space in the book, and you're not the first person to ask me why, there was a chapter dedicated to football Leeds United and Clyde Best, Albert Johansson and other players. It's because um, leading up to 73, uh, football was uh, my first love. I wasn't really interested in cricket as an intense way as I was leading up to 73 and afterwards. Football was certainly my first love and I used to watch it all the time on television. Um, In London, we had the big match on independent television and obviously the BBC had Match of the Day and occasionally Sports Night uh, with my favourite ever commentator. David Coleman. So yeah, football was my my first love and I had all the football cards that we used to swap in the playground with the very hard, tasteless chewing gum. Yeah, it was it was very important to me that I was able to see black footballers on television. And I remember seeing Clyde Best. He was probably one of the only black players at the time when I was growing up. And uh, when I saw him play for West Ham, it was just, it's hard to explain now, of course, but uh, he was just, uh, it was sensational watching him. It was so inspirational. There was a black player on the pitch. Even my mum would watch it just to watch Clyde Best. It was that important. And I interviewed Clyde Best for the book. And he told me he was actually a decent cricketer when he was growing up in Bermuda. And he also told me that um, he remembered the 1973 series. So as soon as he said those two things, he had me hooked. But I won't reveal too much. You'll have to read the book for that. Um Albert Johansson, again, connecting football with cricket and the way things were at the time. Um, I got into the life of Albert when he retired. I found out more about his life after he um, finished playing because I didn't really remember watching him so much when he was playing for Leeds. I found out more about him later when I was growing up. And his story is absolutely fascinating. Um, He married a Jamaican woman in Leeds. He had a family here. Um, he was the first black African to play in a FA Cup final. He talked about all the racist abuse he got living in Leeds and also from Liverpool players in that uh, 65 Cup final. Um, he had a very, very hard time. But one thing that um, was told to me uh, was that uh, the Leeds fans loved him. He was very, very uh, appreciated, well appreciated by the supporters. And he um, was, was absolutely loved. And uh, and appreciated. Um, he was a real novelty factor, of course, but uh, you know he was uh, an amazing player. And it, 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 can you imagine playing now on on these wonderful pitches with protection from referees and VAR and the amazing salaries that footballers get? Uh, Albert would have been a superstar now. 
Absolutely would. But, the, I mean, the block players in the in the first division, as it was then, obviously the equivalent of the Premier League that we know these days. Going forward a few years, aren't you, to the West Brom days when they had Cyril Regis and Brendan Batson. Who yeah. was, was the, the third member of the Three Degrees? can't remember his name. Uh, uh, Laurie Cunningham. Laurie Cunningham, of course. Yeah, the, probably the best, better of the three players, wasn't he? But, but well, the, re- the reason I mentioned Cyril, because I... Sorry, just interject a little bit. The reason I mentioned Cyril in the book is because, again, he told me when I interviewed him that uh, he was very keen on cricket when he was growing up. Interestingly, his father was from St. Lucia and his mother from French Guiana, but had uh, roots in in Guadeloupe and some of my family from Guadeloupe as well. So I, I kind of felt that connection. So I think what I'm trying to say in the book is there were players playing around that time um, in the 70s who you know were, were beacons of beacons of hope for a lot of black supporters watching them play on television. They also they also had a link with cricket, for example. Yeah. But just on that, Colin, I mean, I, I can totally get where you're coming from. That that gives you a bit of kind of personal pride in who you are because they're representing you effectively on that pitch, aren't they? That's that, I guess that's what you're saying, and that that gives you to a point, yeah. yeah. But that, I mean, a bit of encouragement, but, yeah. But but as a, as a young man watching that and seeing how they were treated in those times, I mean, people throwing bananas out the stands, the the monkey chants, the, all the rest of the stuff that was going on in the seventies. You, you know, you, you're getting that kind of sense of I'm supporting that guy because he's a, he's a bit like me. But then you're seeing how he's treated. How does that affect a young man? Yeah, um, I write about that again. I'm, I'm I don't want to give too much away but in the book I talk about uh, the first time I remember really hearing that on TV uh, players being booed for the colour of their skin it was West Brom playing at Manchester United in I think 78, 79 and they went to Old Trafford and won 5-3 I think Sil uh, Regis got a couple I think Cantella got one and I remember Larry Cunningham playing brilliantly because I had, it's funny I remember that the first time round and I remember Gerald Simstad the first ever football commentator, I remember calling out football fans for booing the black players. Mm. And I remember watching the highlights and hearing that. And I was actually stunned. Um, not so much that the players are being booed, because sometimes when you watch these matches on TV, you could just about hear the boos coming through the TV. But that somebody had called, called the supporters out on television. And that's why Gerald Sinstout, to me, uh, was a, an absolute legend you know, for doing that. Even though uh, the football gr- football grounds were difficult places to go, I personally didn't really get any personal abuse directed at me. Um, maybe one or two of the players, but I think it was worse in the 80s and the 70s, to be honest, because I think in the 80s, the hard right politics came into it and made mm-hmm. it a bit more vicious. But certainly when I was um, watching football in the 70s um, and going to matches occasionally, I didn't really hear anything. It wasn't that bad. I think it got worse in the 80s when it got mixed up with um, hardline far-right politics and they got a bit nasty. People would sell, sell newspapers outside grounds and things like that. But um, certainly, um, yeah, a lot of the players had to put up with a lot during those years um, and that's why I kind of, not hero worship them, but I admire them, you know, Cyril Regis and Clyde Best and Addy Coker and, and Batson and, and the a bit later, a player called Terry Connor, who played for Leeds, who uh, for me was an absolute hero. Um, but he's, again, he seems to have been forgotten. Uh, again, uh, watching him in the 80s playing for Leeds, was, he scored in his debut, didn't he? Um, yeah, that, that was quite quite amazing. But, you know, it wasn't just about the black players. There were a lot of players I admired who didn't have Caribbean heritage. People like Billy Bremner, like Frank Worthington, Stan Bowles. I suppose the Mavericks, you might say, Alan Hudson, um, Rodney Marsh, uh, Tony Curry. 
you know, so, you know, it wasn't just about watching football and just picking out the Caribbean players or the players of Caribbean and African heritage. I know a lot of other players I admired, and I mentioned that in, in, in the book as well. When the West Indies arrived in 1973, they'd not won a Test Series in, in five years. Um, they'd lost 2-0 to England um, the previous tour in 1969. Was there much expectation from West Indian cricket fans that they were going to do something special? From the research I've done and from the people I've spoke to, uh, Derek Murray, Keith Fletcher, various journalists, Clayton Goodwin, it seemed to be a bit of a mixed bag, really. England were probably just about the favourites because they were playing at home. And the West Indies had not won a series for a while. So I suppose before the test, most people would have judged, unless you were a really um, enthusiastic, uh, blind to any other kind of reality West Indian fan, say England would have been probably the slight favourites. Mm. Um, but Derek Murray in the book, oh, I won't quote him word for word because you'll have to buy the book to find out. I think his, he was saying to me that it was almost as if the West Indian team was just about to come together. They knew they could do it, but they just needed to prove they could do it. And I think this tour was probably the time when they felt this is where we have to deliver. We know we can deliver, and we, we have to deliver. Um, and we, we're, we're beginning to get our act together. Obviously, um, I suppose, whether you follow cricket or not, you might be aware that the West Indies won the series. So therefore, what I'm trying to say in this book is that the reason why this tour has or deserves more um, more attention is that it probably was one of the foundations on which the West Indies built a, a better future uh, from 1975, six and, and beyond. But also it was, for me, memorable for the pitch invasions. Um, I remember uh, when I started to go to cricket, a bit after 73, it was just common to run on the pitch. So, you know, someone scored a four or, a, or hit a six into the crowd, but mainly a four. All these young schoolboys, including me, of course, would just run onto the pitch and try and field the ball. And at the end, you'd run onto, onto the pitch and try and get under the pavilion to chant at the players, you know. Um, I don't know whether you did that when you went to cricket, but it was just such a common thing. And if you watch the 73 series, it just reveals um, that there were so many West Indians and English supporters were just full of joy and and, and, and and happiness and watching watching the series and running on the pitch and really having a great time. Um, obviously, now with the security situation and, it, and the way things are in most public arenas, you can't really do that. And I kind of understand that. And stewarding has become quite a serious occupation as well. But certainly, um, it, it was joy unleashed for many, many supporters and particularly West Indian supporters, when they when they could see a team coming from the Caribbean, uh, beating beating the English, playing great cricket, and and being able to watch it and to celebrate that, and I think um, some of the players appreciated that. Um, Maurice Foster, um, again, who is a West Indian player who deserves uh, more attention, I think uh, he was on that tour as well, and he played in the third Test at Lords, and he was saying that. Um, it was amazing for a lot of the players to get that uh, feeling of being out of the Caribbean, playing to such a loud and raucous and, and, and enthusiastic fan base, whether they're at the Oval Lords, uh, Old Trafford or wherever the West Indies played. 
I found it quite interesting as well. It wasn't the only Caribbean tour of that that year because Bob Marley and the Whalers came over and t- undertook their first UK tour in the same year as well. So I would have loved to have seen that. I mean, I'd have, I'd have only been four years old, but I'd have loved to have seen that um, because it, <laughs> fa- fa- fantastic, fantastic band that he had. But that, I mean, that would have been something special, I guess, for the Caribbean community too. Yeah, and the non-Caribbean community because uh, a lot of people who appreciated his music were not were not all West Indian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what what I, what I try to do in the in the book is talk about not just cricket, although cricket is the theme that runs through the book, but talk about other things that happened that year, which directly or indirectly connected with me or my family or Caribbean or non-Caribbean people that I knew or didn't know, um, and that included that tour in '73 by Bob Marley. Also, the Eurovision Song Contest of that year, CARICOM being formed, which is, I suppose, the Caribbean version of the European Union. Britain joined the common market in 1973. <laughs> so I talk about that and how that, how that connects with Brexit. Whether you voted for Brexit or not, to me, that's immaterial. It still was an important uh, year. And also, I talk about how my identity has shifted a bit since 1973. Um, where cricket is connected with that or not, you'll have to read the book and find out. Just going back to the, the cricket then, for to, to finish off with, Colin, the, as you said, the West Indies won that series 2-0. They won the first test match and the third test match through the, the middle test. Ron Headley also made his debut and the kind of meat in the sandwich between George and Dean, isn't it? I mean, I, I did a book called Following On in the Footsteps of Cricket and Fathers and spoke to Dean about pressure of following on with that surname. Um, and Ron was a, a very yeah. a very good Worcestershire player. Got a little bit lucky because of the injury um, that you mentioned um, earlier on in the podcast. But Ron came in and played his only two test matches in that summer. Yes. Uh, I mean, one of the things that you might notice in the book is that I talk about players who seem to have been ignored. Um, when we talk about uh, West Indian cricket and its connection with the community in Britain. And one of the players who really deserves a lot more than he gets in terms of attention is Ron Headley, who's a fabulous player for Worcestershire. Mm. And he helped them to win championships. And at one point, just like Gordon Greenwich, he was able to play for England because he came here as a teenager and lived here for quite a few years. So he was actually qualified to play for England, just like Gordon Greenwich was. And in fact, Gordon Greenwich and Ron Headley uh, apparently were both can, you know, in the mix to replace Steve Kamash to become the new opener with Roy Fredericks. Uh, but eventually, Ron Headley got the nod. Looking back, I mean, I didn't really know what was that until I did some more research and spoke to some more people. I'm so pleased that Ron got his opportunity in his 30s to represent the West Indies. And uh, if you read the book, you'll find out what he thinks about that and what other people think about the fact that it did take him that long to get his opportunity. And he talks about um, this morning, first morning, playing test cricket, opening the batting at the Oval. Uh, on the first day of the test, he tells a, a tale about uh, how he coped with, with that. And uh, again, you can read that. And also, I, um, I interviewed Frank Hayes, who was one of my favourite non-Caribbean players and he talks about uh, his experiences during that series. And uh, yes, he made a pretty pretty good start to his test series. Uh, some of you may know, some may not, but you can find out again 
my reading 1973. And well, me? I, yeah, I, I don't think it's a big seri- um, secret, Colin, that you made a century in that series. So that's not, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think that's a massive spoiler for your, for your book that Frank Hayes scored 100. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm overcooking the, the spoiler alert thing there. But, um, yeah, I'm actually doing that for added comedy value, I must say. Um, but, yeah, 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 Frank Hayes uh, scored 100 on debut. And again, I guess I, the 70s Lancashire team were very attractive to me with their one-day successes. Yeah. The fans singing, oh, lanky, 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 Lancashire, which obviously, if you're from Yorkshire, you might not really want to appreciate. Yorkshire, but, um, Yorkshire, yeah. Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, there you go. But uh, yeah, I really, um, yeah, I was really, really uh, uh, impre- inspired in a way by watching Frank Hayes, his blonde hair, youthful, exuberant, you know, so that comes across in the book. And also, um, yeah, for any Yorkshire listeners, I spent a bit of time talking to the Leeds Caribbean Cricket Club as well, okay. who've been in existence for a pretty long time. So, yeah, they get a bit of a nod in the book as well. But I think um, one of the things I want to mention is that a lot of people stepped up and, and, and spoke to me for the book, and I'm really appre- I really appreciate the time that they gave me to listen to my questions, share their stories, share their experiences and memories. Some people said things which I didn't, put in the book for fear of libel. I'm only joking, but in a way, there were some quite revealing things said to me which I felt I couldn't put in. So yeah, big thank you to other players I haven't mentioned or other people I've not mentioned. That's Dennis Amos and Dickie Bird, uh, Lance Gibbs, uh, uh, who else I speak to? Bernard Julian. I didn't speak to him directly, but um, Reza Abazali, a friend of mine and journalist in Trinidad, spoke to him for the book. Alvin Kalicharan said some wonderful things. And Simon Lister, the author of Fire in Babylon, kindly wrote the foreword to this book as well. The 1973 series, obviously a success for the West Indies. We all know what happened when Tony Gregg said that he was going to make the West Indies grovel in 1976 because it was far from that. It was the start of a, a glorious period in, in West Indies cricket history, wasn't it? They all dominant. Obviously, there was a little bit of a changing in the guard, the personnel that came back in 76. You had Viv Richards, Michael Holding and, and a few of the other new names coming into that side. But... From that 1973 series, the, the flag was put in the ground, wasn't it? And from there on, West Indies really did catapult themselves into the best team in the world. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm trying to say by talking about this book and talking about this series is that uh, it was important to me personally, but it was important uh, for the future of West Indies cricket and especially teams that came to England on tour uh, from then on. The West Indies were very, very dominant in England, and I think 73 was was a very, very big turning point. But also, um, it talks about the book itself. I mean, moving away from the cricket, the book talks a lot about uh, the history of Caribbean migration to Britain, and there are other perspectives on history, identity, music, and politics. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, you don't have to be a cricket fan or have Caribbean heritage or have grown up in the 70s to, to get something out of this book. Colin Babb, it's been great to have you on the podcast. 1973 and Me, the England and West Indies Test Series and a memorable childhood year, published by Hanseep Publications Limited. Where can people yes. get it from, Colin? Uh, because of uh, the ongoing situation, there has been a delay in, in getting the book into shops and online retailers, etc. So the best way to get your early bird copy in advance and during the West Indies tour of 2020 is to contact me on 
my website or through my website, which is colinbabauthor.com, C-O-L-I-N-B-A-B-B-Author.com. Or I'm on Twitter at GaveTheCloud, G-A-V-E-T-H-E-C-R-O-W-D. Or on Instagram, ColinBabAuthor. So yeah, ColinBabAuthor.com is probably the best way to get through. Um, just find me and uh, I'll uh, arrange to get a book to you ASAP with, with the necessary payment details. Colin, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Good luck with your book and thanks for talking to me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. It's that Badger style. My thanks to Colin for joining me on this edition of the Cricket Badger podcast, a fellow Leeds United fan. So fingers crossed over the next few weeks that Leeds finish off the job and playing Premier League football. But that is just a personal opinion. I'm sure there's plenty of you out there shouting at the Cricket Badger podcast at the moment saying, yeah, Leeds United, Dirty Leeds, etc. Well, be quiet because it's my podcast. I can say what I like. But I hope you enjoyed that. And if you want to buy that book, 1973 and Me, the England, the West Indies Test Series and a memorable childhood year by Colin Babb, forward by Simon Lister, published by Hansi Publications. Colin was giving you the information at the end there. If you missed his website address and you want to know more details on how you can get your hands on this book, www.colinbabauthor.com. Thank you for joining me on this edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast and thank you for listening over the last few weeks of lockdown and before that as well, the Cricket Badger Podcast is going from strength to strength and that is down to your ears and your listens and your time of hopefully enjoying the Cricket Badger Podcast that uh, we've been putting out there. So stay tuned, plenty more to come as I say and if you could just spare me a little bit of time, it'd be much appreciated. Add a little bit of a like, a subscribe or a nice comment on whatever podcast platform you listen to the cricket badger podcast on and that'll uh, do it no harm at all thanks again to tvsportsblog.com for their support of the cricket badger podcast that has been invaluable over the uh, last few weeks of uh, covid19 and everything else that we've been going through give them a follow on twitter at tv sports blog give the podcast a follow on twitter as well at cricket underscore badger there's all the plugs out the way if you do all that you'll keep in the loop and you'll know when the next editions of the cricket badger podcast are coming out into your ears and stay tuned because there's plenty more to come i've been james thank you very much indeed for listening and i'll see you next time when i bring you the next edition of the cricket badger podcast Podcast Network.